0: Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. With climate change creating new sea routes through the Arctic Circle, China is making moves to assert navigation and scientific rights in the region. Mike is joined by CSIS Senior Vice President
1: for Europe, Heather Conley, to discuss China's role in this emerging region of the Asia Chessboard.
0: Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Michael Green at CSIS and Georgetown University. I'm joined today by a friend and colleague in and out of government, Heather Conley, who is a corporate officer at CSIS and runs Europe, Russia, and the Arctic. And we're here today to talk about the Arctic as a new part of the Asia Chessboard. Welcome, Heather.
1: Thanks, Mike. Great to be here.
0: We always like to help people figure out who you are and how you got here. And you're our first non-Asia hand in a way.
1: Well, I'm very um, excited about being the you first have, non-guest. <laughs> I know you do have
0: a connection to Asia through our mutual mentor, Rich Armitage. How'd you get into this business?
1: Okay. Well, I have the world's strangest story. I began as an intern at the State Department my last semester at my college uh, years. And um, it was during the first Gulf War. And I worked in the political military bureau and I was hired after that. It was a great internship because so many of the military officers that were serving at state had, had to return back to the Pentagon. Short story, I just had a very substantive internship, which I was then hired. And one of the portfolios I worked on was uh, the State Department has to approve the Global Defense Department's Humanitarian Assistance Program. So excess uh, Defense Department, medical supplies, food supplies. It's a very tiny office. And I was just sitting on that portfolio for a while and enjoying it thoroughly. And then the Soviet Union Broke apart. Well, even before that, a month before the Soviet Union broke apart, we actually tested sending medical supplies to Chernobyl children. And the State Department's enthusiasm for that little experiment uh, was great because they sent me as the State Department representative. So, in interns are uh, for? Exactly. Uh, so, the month later, Secretary Jim Baker announces Operation Provide Hope, which was a massive relief, humanitarian relief program to Russia and then the, at that time, newly independent states. And the person he placed in charge of that effort was one. Richard L. Armitage. So I was deployed to St. Petersburg, Russia uh, for a month to distribute those supplies. And a month after when I came back, uh, I was recruited to join Rich's team as the coordinator of all U.S. government assistance. He has been my mentor ever since. So I started this gig providing humanitarian and technical aid to Russia. I left the State Department to get my graduate degree at Johns Hopkins Sice worked for Rich uh, Armitage and his consulting firm. And then, when he became Deputy Secretary of State, I followed him back in the Powell uh, State Department and the Bush administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the European Bureau, where I looked after Northern Europe and Central Europe, which was a great advantage because after I left the State Department in 2005, I went to the American Red Cross for a few years, uh, which was a, a tremendous experience. But I was so glad I did Northern Europe because when I came back, back to CSIS, one of the research topics was the Arctic, mm-hmm. and because I had been DAS over the Nordics, uh, I I had been to Greenland, I had been to Norway, and uh, had a little bit of an appreciation for this wonderful region and topic, but boy, have I learned a lot in the last 10 years since I've been here at wonderful CSIS. So the, the
0: Heather Connolly version of Go West, young man, is Go North. Go young North. Woman. Now, I thought you were a presidential management intern when you were doing this former Soviet state No, work. I was just... So you not interned. You were not
1: intern out, of grad that you got got out of Pulled in from undergraduate. Undergrad. Yeah. Now,
0: is it true the story that you stood on a tarmac and stared down a Russian plane? <laughs>
1: Well, I would tell you, I, I froze on a tarmac in St. Petersburg, waiting for C5As to land, where uh, CNN and film crews were tumbling out. Here's a fun fact: uh, I was there at the same time that one Vladimir Putin was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, uh, and we had met with Mayor Subchuk at that time. Um, those were days of, you know, very positive. You know, U.S. Russian relations were in a very different trajectory, and then, of course, when I went back into government the Bush administration and we thought that there was a reset to be had after 9 11 and we keep resetting and the yeah. relations keep getting uh uh worse and worse so
0: you also worked on the McCain campaign right
1: I did and you did. remember a little his bit. famous
0: line you know George W Bush uh, our our boss at one point said he looked in Putin's eyes and saw a soul and John McCain against everyone's advice kept saying I looked in his eyes and saw three letters K, G, and B
1: indeed and indeed. he had it
0: probably About right. So you have been surrounding or moving towards the Arctic throughout your career, and now you're really focused on it. You have a report coming out at the end of March on Arctic strategy and geopolitics. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. So, you know, for the last 10 years, we have had a a longstanding research Topic on the Arctic and really trying to assess U.S. strategic interests in the Arctic. So for the past decade, I have failed miserably to try to convince U.S. policymakers that, number one, there were some important geopolitical changes happening in the Arctic and that the U.S. had an enormous stake in those outcomes. So after frustration and lots of reports and lots of good work, I decided to turn the analytical question on its head. Not to continue to press for the U.S. to understand how strategically important the Arctic is, but using the great power competition lens of the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, I said, "Okay, China and Russia – see the Arctic as very strategic to their military and economic interests? And assuming that the US remains at a constant and does not, what are those long-term strategic implications? So we wanted to assess and think through using scenarios what the Arctic would look like by 2050, so pushing this Mm -hmm. out for 30 years, and what would great power competition look like, and then assuming that Russia and China uh, continue to develop, how will that harm the U.S. US national security? So hopefully, uh, this report will raise sufficient alarm that motivates U.S. policymakers to build up U.S. capabilities in the Arctic. Unfortunately, we're already a decade behind.
0: So both China and Russia are very ambitious and very aggressive, but they're Current positions are also quite different, right? Russia has territorial claims and very active military measures to try to dominate the Arctic, whereas China is trying to position itself, uh, arguing it has interests, but not necessarily territorial claims. How would you characterize each of them? And also, you know, is this an area where we're going to see China and Russia align, or is this actually possibly the place where Chinese and Russian interests begin to really collide?
1: Well, it's a great question because you're absolutely right. The great powers are uneven in the Arctic. Russia is an Arctic superpower. And and we have documented this in an earlier report, which we called the new ice curtain, to think about uh, really Russia's survival is now based on the Arctic. It's future economic survival of energy resources. Over 22% of current Russian GDP uh, originates from the Arctic. Uh, They have a a, a more broadly defined geographical span that we would consider sub-Arctic as well. And clearly Russia, about a decade 13 years ago, made a significant change and began to rebuild their military posture in the Arctic. Now, understanding it had collapsed at the end of, of the Cold War, but they began to reconstitute it. And so we spend a lot of time in the report thinking through and talking about that Russian military buildup. And if there's one thing that impacts U.S. national interests and security interests today, it is that Russian military buildup. And now what we're seeing, hypersonic cruise missiles and, and a real, very significant advancement in Russian military capabilities. Now, that is not designed for the Arctic, but that is in the Arctic, and of course, it will uh, be part of any you know conflict if that would ever come to pass. So, Russia is the most significant near-term threat to the United States, and and again, it's different as as U.S. national security officials think about this. Taking sort of uh, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, he says, you know, China is the most important, and mm. then Russia. And the Arctic is the opposite. So Russia is the most important. Let's get
0: to China for sure. Yeah. Um, but a little more on Russia. When we think about Russia, on my side of the globe. In Asian geopolitics, it's a middle power. It is not a major power. And yes, the Russian Air Force is causing the Japanese Air Force to scramble more. Yes, they are spoilers on the Korean Peninsula, but they're not a uh, major power in the great game in the Pacific, um, certainly not the way they are in Europe. Is Russia positioned to potentially dominate the Arctic in a way where their influence, their strategic reach Their control of resources transforms their overall posture in geopolitics. Could they become a far more significant actor in Asia precisely because of what they're doing in the Arctic? Or is this a... A contest that's sort of limited to the North Pole.
1: Well, certainly the concentration of Russian military forces, it it looks, again, very similar to the Cold War military footprint. It is very concentrated in Russia's Western Arctic on the Kola Peninsula. It looks towards NATO. It looks towards the West. So in the report, we talk about that Russia essentially has two Arctics. And we, we have maps where we sort of divide it in the middle. Russia's eastern Arctic, so the, the north Pacific-facing mm-hmm. Arctic, is fairly sparsely you know populated, it's some infrastructure. You do have a new uh, installation about 300 nautical miles from Alaska, Wrangell Island, which there's a, a more advanced SAPKA2 radar. We use just, a, again, a little bit of advertising. We use a lot of commercial satellite mm-hmm. imagery to demonstrate exactly what is there, what is not there. So the east is predominantly about, you know, making sure they know what's coming into the northern I sea see. route. But all the military buildup is on the Kola Peninsula, the Western Arctic, and it's advancing pretty far north. So there are some concerns that this is about, you know, perhaps advancing Russian claims undersea, extended outer continental shelf claims mm-hmm. to the North Pole. But, but it's mil- less sparsely on the North Pacific. So militarily,
0: end. it is more of a EUCOM NATO problem than it is a Indo-PACOM Japan problem.
1: Yes and no. So let's talk about China. Right. So this is where – and let me just tell you, this is a unified command plan problem. Mm-hmm. The Arctic doesn't fit into anybody's a perfect operational remit. So in 2011, how the Unified Command Plan worked out in the Arctic, U.S. Northcom has advocacy capabilities. Ucom has operational capabilities. And in some ways, Indo, Indo-Paycom really was not part of it. Now that China is sending m- you know, more significant surface vessels, now they are LNG carriers, they are si- icebreakers that are scientific, container ships. This is going to be increasingly – needs to be a focus of Indo-PACOM because we're going to see Chinese maritime traffic, potentially with escorts, going through the narrow Bering Straits to the Russian Arctic because the Chinese are investing a great deal in the Yamal liquefied natural gas Plants and and that is really their interest in getting the LNG. Also, the mineral uh, resources as well. We're going to see Chinese fishing vessels at a future point as fishing stocks travel north, uh, and they're going to be increasingly using that sea route. So we're going to see a lot of Chinese maritime presence in the Arctic, and we don't have really a, a, an, an Indo-Pacific construct. Mm-hmm for understanding what that means for Alaska, for U.S. coastline, and then the strategic approaches to the United States from the North Pacific.
0: But it sounds... And you uh, note in the early versions of the report I saw, you're still speculating to some extent about Chinese interests. I mean, yes, they've talked about the Belt and Road extending to the Arctic. But in terms of their real bottom line strategic interests, it appears to me mostly about energy and natural resources. Is there a military dimension as well? I mean, let me put it a different way. You know, Mahan said famously, whoever controls the sea lanes dominates. In Mahan's day, the polar ice cap was not melting. Um, It was, you know, they were not sea lanes. Who's vulnerable here? I mean, if China is trying to exploit Russian oil and gas, fisheries, natural resources, access and sea lanes to those resources, and if they're going through the Arctic and the North Pacific, that's our version of their near sea. Yeah, That is an area where we have shorter lines, where we have Canada, where we have a military uh, posture that in some ways puts them at great risks and makes them vulnerable. So where is the balance of power and influence if this is a contest with China over access to the Arctic?
1: Yeah, so I think what we try to do uh, is really create a good baseline of understanding of what China's activities are in the Arctic. And quite frankly, there's a lot of uh, hype about it. Uh, And we really try to assess what it is and what it isn't. Lots of announcements, but not necessarily we're seeing big things on the ground. China is interested, I believe, in diversification of maritime routes, so alternatives to the Straits of Malacca. That's the Northern Sea Route they're interested in those protein resources, they're interested in the energy and the mineral resources and the infrastructure. And so it is an economic interest today. But most of the commercial and economic presence that we're seeing and scientific presence is dual use. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where we do then start going into speculation. If we can imagine weaponized icebreakers or science, that scientific missions that are not science, you know, we start to think that out a little bit more. And to get back to your earlier question, the one thing I think U.S. policymakers are completely missing, we sort of in isolation can assess Russia and in isolation we can assess China. What we're failing to do is understanding if China and Russia in the Arctic uniquely are going to work together. And what we're seeing is increased military uh, joint ac- uh, exercises, whether in that's the Arctic. in the Arctic, uh, Vostok twenty eighteen, which every year the Russian military four military districts it rotates once a year does a an m- major annual exercise. In 2018, Vostok was for the Russian Far East, the Eastern Military District. It was the first time that Chinese forces were invited there. Uh, Last year's in the center military district, China was again invited. And that exercise took place in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. We've continued to watch Chinese and Russian uh, maritime exercising. And one of the first ones happened off the Aleutian Islands in 2015, uh, which was the first time uh, that we saw, you know, Russian and Chinese maritime joint activities, five PLA vessels off of Alaska. I mean, it's just a nice reminder that they have growing capabilities to, to go north. But if these two, we think uh, conventional wisdom tells us that these strategic antibodies between China and Russia will preclude them from, from working together. But Since events in Crimea and eastern Ukraine and western sanctions, the Russians have had to increasingly rely on the Chinese for financing. Uh, And the Russians have given, particularly in the Arctic, the Chinese some pretty good concessionary opportunities in that LNG plant. The Russian government has understood that its energy markets have been so exclusively western. They've missed the Asian energy bonanza. They are now trying to reorient themselves. It's taking time. And what we see is the Russians just announced a joint Sino-Russian scientific center in Russia, the economics, the military. So we do, through scenarios, think through what would that mean for the United States if Russian ports housed Chinese ice-strengthened surface vessels, and what would that mean if they worked together against U.S. and Western interests.
0: Spent last summer in Mongolia, which is a really interesting canary in the coal mine for this question of Sino-Russian relations. Because the Mongolians are incredibly attuned to the balance of power influence. And the current government is growing alarmed that Russia is ceding its interests to China in areas the Mongolians had always thought they could at least count on the Russians as a counterbalance. And that may be a little bit of what we're seeing.
1: I think it's exactly – in some ways, it's not happiness by the Russians. But it's growing acceptance to maintain strength. They have to accept – that they are the junior partners in this relationship. And I think Xi Jinping shows Vladimir Putin an enormous amount of respect, even acknowledging that now they're the senior partners. And that also goes a long way to further this. And I think we underestimate what it could do.
0: You know, this is not a policy or international relations theory term, but it's creepy. It's a little creepy. It comes down to the question. (laughs) Yeah, it's a technical term. If you look at geography, if you look at demographics. If you look at history, Russians should be scared to death of China. But if you look at regime type and ideology and regime survival, there's a certain logic to it. We just don't know how far it goes.
1: You're absolutely right. The ironic part is the Russian government fears encirclement by the West. That is their entire – and that the West wants their energy resources. They are being encircled by China, and China does want their energy resources. But uh, the Kremlin's entire uh, you know, existence is based on the coming conflict with the West, not China.
0: The Chinese call their Arctic strategy, what, the Polar Silk Road, is it, or the So uh,
1: there is basically, they've, well, two things. They've taken the Belton and Road, and it's the Polar Silk Road. Yeah. And there is a Silk Road fund, so there's right. a specific fund to that. And two years ago, they issued their, the Chinese issued their first white paper, which actually, and we've had, uh, di- uh, you know, track two dialogues with Chinese experts on, on the Arctic and scholars. We really encourage them to do this, to put this out on paper, what their ambitions are. And truly, their ambitions are making sure that those the five coastal states of the Arctic, which, of course, Russia, the United States, Canada, Norway, and the Kingdom of Denmark because of Greenland, the Chinese want to make sure that those five coastal states do not preclude uh, China from retaining access, particularly to the high seas around the central Arctic Ocean, what we call the donut hole, which is the, the high seas area beyond the 200 nautical miles of the coastal states. The Chinese want to make sure that they will have maritime rights to that, fishing rights to that when there are fish mm-hmm. <laughs> in the central Arctic. And when and if a moratorium, fishing moratorium is lifted, they want to be part of that and, and really see the economic benefits of an increasingly ice-free
0: Arctic. You know, the Polar Silk Road is, is a historical for one. And uh, secondly, when you think about the Arctic, you don't think about wearing silk. It's a very odd image. And the Chinese are hyping Silk Road and Belt and Road. There's, there's a lunar, there's a, you know, it's, it's endless. So it's hard to know where the hype is sort of overwhelming the reality. Uh, but I'll yeah. tell you one parallel. So this is not in any way analogous, I would say, to China's approach to the first island chain, to the East and South China Seas, where China has territorial claims, wants a military submarine bastion, wants uh, anti-accessary denial uh, against the US and its allies. It's more akin perhaps to the Pacific Islands going further South, or maybe the Indian Ocean, where the Chinese are also pursuing fisheries and energy, uh, sea lanes, and building dual-use spaces. And the concern for the U.S., India, Australia, Japan, about the Pacific, South Pacific, and the Indian Ocean is, we can take them out in a war. There'll be, uh, they're isolated dual-use bases. But when you're not in the war, when you're in the crisis phase, when there's tension, if you're Australia, if you're India, if you're the U.S. Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, you can't ignore the possibility of a Chinese submarine being in Guadalajara and Pakistan or in Vanuatu in the Pacific Island. So I wonder if there's a bit of that as well. The Chinese are stretching us out and making us watch our own flanks, which makes it harder for us to concentrate and our allies to concentrate on the really hard fight which China cares more about, which is in the Western Pacific. Is it possible? Is there any evidence to suggest that, or uh, we're really speculating now? But I wonder what yeah, you think. You
1: no, I mean, I, I think certainly the, the the pattern of of those interests, but I see them right now meeting China's economic and long term mm-hmm. strategic interests. But for me, it's for the U.S. This the Arctic is homeland defense. Mm-hmm. Because of Alaska. For the United States, this is not uh, far away from home or, you know, contemplating that. So when we see increased Chinese vessel traffic along the West Coast, the uh, Alaskan coast, and then potentially uh, we will see, I believe, Chinese submarines in the Arctic. We've never thought about that uh, approach. Russian submarines, of course, we uh, know that and are seeing a dramatic uptick of Russian uh, submarines and their modernization of their nuclear deterrent uh, is eye-catching and and noteworthy. But we have to think of a future where there could be Chinese submarines in the the Central Arctic as well. And what does that mean for homeland defense? What does that mean uh, to make sure that we are not blackmailed in any way?
0: The Chinese complain loudly about our freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, but they do comparable things near Alaska. And that's going to yeah. be the future. It, it may not be a deliberate strategy to um, draw our attention away from the Western Pacific in a crisis, but it's a reality that complicates our, our planning either way. Are we aligned with our democratic partners in Europe and Asia on this problem?
1: Yes and no. We, uh, there's been a slow awakening that the Arctic is becoming increasingly contested. We worked very, I, I think allies worked very hard over the last decade to try to not see this. You know, we kept saying the Arctic is exceptional. And, you know, the the our Norwegian colleagues kept always saying high north, low tensions. You know, we had to work very, very hard to make sure that the, the geopolitical tensions didn't creep into the Arctic. This was a false hope. The Arctic in some ways ways, speaking of canaries, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, when the geopolitics warm, the Arctic is the first to thaw. That was true in 1987 when Gorbachev really gave the first speech to say, you know, maybe the Arctic should be uh, a military-free or a nuclear-free zone. And when things began to uh, tense up again, the Arctic felt that. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, I've always called it a, a geopolitical bellwether for us. But we try to ignore it because, quite frankly, the U.S. military does not want another assignment. They're already really busy with and stretched with what they have. So no one wanted to see this. But increasingly, we can ignore it. So two years ago, NATO uh, held its largest military exercise uh, centered in northern Norway, Trident Juncture. And that was really the first test of NATO really working in very difficult cold weather conditions, although it was in September. We've, you know, the U.S. for the first time has rotating Marines in Norway. Mm-hmm. We are building new hangar space in Iceland at Keflavik because we're doing maritime patrol aircraft. It sort of feels like we're back, yeah. uh, back to that. And if it's, it's very Russia-focused. But this China element, in some ways, I, I think uh, the U.S. government Uh, very suddenly woke up and said, whoa, whoa, what's China doing here? And of course, China had been in the Arctic really since 2004 with its first scientific center. It had been building bilaterally uh, its economic relationship with all the Arctic coastal states and members of the Arctic Council. And now you go to conferences, uh, the Chinese delegations are the largest at the Arctic conferences, and they're funding a lot of science. They are, but
0: you know, you look at the list of countries that China is really pissing off right now. And right at the top are Canada, Sweden, Norway.
1: Yes, I um, would say they're, Canada, they're not, Sweden. Uh, exactly. They're not, yeah. You no, know, fair enough.
0: So it raises the question whether um, we need some kind of grouping of like-minded states to manage Arctic. And I'd ask about where Asian allies fit. The only one that immediately comes to mind, of course, is Japan.
1: So I will say Japan, Korea, Singapore. Over the last several years, everybody's creating Arctic envoys. Everybody's creating white papers, drafting strategies. Again, some uh, propelled by economic interests, Mm -hmm. certainly Great Korean icebreaker capabilities, ice-strengthened oil platforms, you name it. I mean, I've seen the the business opportunity as Arctic maritime routes opened up. Uh, I think our Japanese colleagues, were one of the first to really understand China's growing interest in the Arctic. And I think they saw where this was a confluence of getting Russia Mm -hmm. uh, and understanding that Russia prioritized the Arctic. We don't have a place to talk about Arctic geopolitics. The Arctic Council, which is the main intergovernmental forum of the five Arctic coastal states, plus Iceland, Sweden, and Finland, and then the indigenous peoples, the permanent representatives. That body can only deal with um, environmental protection and sustainable development. It's really based on on science and working groups. Very collaborative. Of course, China is an observer. Japan is an observer. Korea, even India, is an observer. Uh, It's a growing body. But we don't have a place to speak about military developments. We don't have a place to speak about, um, you know, making sure dual-use capabilities, that there's transparency or that we understand uh, each other. That's what we've been searching for because the last 10 years we told ourselves, no, it's exceptional. We don't need any of this. We don't need any of this. And now we really do need a place to talk very much with Russia, I think, in the first instance. And then we have to bring China into that conversation.
0: Well, if we're going to have a... Platform or a a venue where we're talking about geopolitics, military issues in the Arctic with Russia or with China, then we're going to need a caucus. We're going to need a group of like minded states. We have this informal grouping we call the Quad in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean Japan, India, Australia, US. I don't think India is in this one necessarily. But I can imagine somewhere down the road that the US, Japan, Korea, uh, Norway, uh, and other like minded NATO and, and Asian allies start forming an informal planning process to to deal with this because the geopolitics just keep getting more complicated. The Asia chessboard is expanding north. And Heather Conley, thanks for helping us understand it. What can I say, it's a cool place?
1: <laughs> it's extremely cool. And Mike, thank you so much. I'm very honored to be a uh, your first non-Asian guest. Thank yeah. you so well,
0: much. Our first Arctic guest for Arctic sure. Our first Arctic guest. Congrats, the report comes out at the end of March. It's end on the geopolitics of, of the Arctic.
1: Great power competition in the Arctic till 2050 is this America's moment. I hope you enjoy it.
0: Thank you, we'll have you back in 2015, see how it went. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, Visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.